Well, with that, I invite you to turn to the book of Revelation. The book of Revelation. I mentioned last Sunday that for the, for the next two or three months that we're going to step away from our sermon series uh, in 1 Thessalonians and jump into a new series preaching through the first chapters, first three chapters of Revelation. So last week we started into Revelation chapter 1 and began by simply making the point that God wants us to think about the future. God wants us to think about the future. He wants us to, to believe in the reality of our Savior's return, to hope for it, to live in expectation of His coming, to eagerly watch and to patiently wait for Him, and, and honestly to get our act together. To live by faith and live according to the Lordship of Jesus Christ because the things that will usher in the end will, as John records, will soon take place and the time is near. So we looked at verses 1 to 3 and we made some observations about the proximity of the revelation uh, and the profitability of the revelation, but probably the most important thing that we considered was the person of the revelation, who is none other than the Lord Jesus, who, according to verse 1, is not only the revealer, but also the one who is the overarching subject and and, and object of this particular prophecy. That is to say, Revelation is a book of Jesus, by Jesus, and about Jesus. In fact, no other book in Scripture reveals the glory of of God and Christ in any more splendor and majesty than does this book. And yet, few books have been more ignored, more neglected, misunderstood, and misinterpreted than than this book. But that's not the way it should be. Because even though there are some things we mentioned last time about this particular book and about end times in general that are shrouded in mystery particularly as to some of the specific details, still, God has made many things very clear. Now, we're not, we're not prophecy mongers. Uh, we're not going to go beyond the Scriptures like uh, this uh, self-styled Christian numerologist. You may have heard of David Mead. He evidently is very popular on, on, um, on YouTube, uh, but I've even seen some recent interviews Fox News and others concerning his, uh, his predictions about the future. The, the man has already falsely predicted the end of the world on numerous past occasions, and uh, he has his uh, latest theory uh, trying to calculate all these things regarding uh, constellations and such, but his latest theory points to tomorrow, in case you're, in case you're wondering. Uh, April 23rd is the next prediction of the, the end of the world. And so when these, these things come, these dates come and they pass, then of course he, he steps back a little bit, he recalculates, and, and then he has some way of sort of, uh, of describing that differently. So it's not actually the end, it's sort of the beginning of the end, or it's one step closer to the end. And so these, you know, there are people like this, right, that are going beyond Scripture. And so we're not going to do that. Nevertheless... Revelation is in our canon, and therefore it is for exploration and for study. We need to study it because it humbles us. It causes us to esteem what God has said. And we live, Scripture says, we live by every word of it. 
We live by every word of it, including the words that deal with the last things. And the Lord expects us to read this book. He expects us to hear it with spiritual ears and to diligently keep it. In fact, there is a blessing, according to verse 3, for doing just that. Now, that brings us into verse 4, and we get a little more uh, formal introduction this morning. This is still a part of uh, you might consider to be the, the prologue or this introductory section. And let me just read it for us. We're going to begin here. This is I'm reading from the New American Standard. Uh, this is Revelation chapter 1, verses 4, uh, down through verse 8. John, to the seven churches that are in Asia, grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come, and from the seven spirits who are before his throne, and from Jesus Christ the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and the ruler of the kings of the earth, to him who loves us and released us from our sins by his blood. And he has made us to be a kingdom, priest to his God and Father. To him be the glory and the dominion forever and ever. Amen. Behold, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see Him, even those who pierced Him, and all the tribes of the earth will mourn over Him, so it is to be. Amen. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. So we have John. We mentioned this is the, this is the Apostle John, who has already said in verse 3, that we are to read the words of this prophecy, that we are to hear them with ears of faith, and we are to keep them, or we are to heed them, or you might say we are to obey them. And so what we have now is John, he's still sort of, as I mentioned, introducing this letter. So this is a, it's a prophecy, and yet it is written like normal correspondence in the first century. And if we were to outline these particular verses, it would break down something like this. In verses, uh, verse 4 into the first half of verse 5, there's this Trinitarian uh, benediction or Trinitarian greeting. Picking up in the second half of verse 5 and down into verse 6, we find an inspired uh, praise to Christ. And then in verses 7 and 8, a preview of Christ's second coming. So a Trinitarian greeting, inspired praise to Christ, and a preview of Christ's second coming. Not, not, not great when it comes to alliteration, so not, not so much on that this, this week, but I think that's a good way to, for us to think through these verses. So let's look first at this Trinitarian greeting, or this greeting from the Godhead, from the Trinity. Beginning in verse 4, John to the seven churches that are in Asia... Grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and is to come, and from the seven spirits who are before his throne, and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and the ruler of the kings of the earth. Again, the letter begins uh, like most ancient correspondence, and we know that this correspondence from the Apostle John was written and intended for local fellowships on the earth. Real, real local fellowships, real local churches, in fact, seven of them. Uh, according to verse, verse 11, he was to write in a book what he saw 
and, and then send it to the seven churches and the locations of those local fellowships that are listed there. When we get to chapters 2 and 3, we will see what the, the messenger from God on behalf of Jesus Christ has to say to these various churches. But there are seven of them. They are, they are real churches, and these letters or this entire letter with particular messages to each of the churches is addressed here. And John says, it is to the seven churches that are in Asia. And so we have these, and I, I, put, I thought this might be helpful just to have a visual for you. Uh, if you're not familiar with these churches and their locations, we'll, of course, get into this when we get to those seven individual messages. We'll get into these things in more detail. But just as sort of an initial survey, we have the church at Ephesus. This was the, the, the hardworking, steadfast church that exposed error and, and false teaching. Uh, they would not tolerate evil, and yet we find there that they had, had left their first love. We have the church of Smyrna, at Smyrna. This was an impoverished uh, and persecuted congregation, slandered by many, and many in the church were imprisoned and sentenced to death. Uh, we have the church at Pergamum. This is the church that shined the blinding light of the gospel into every a corner of Satan's dominion, but struggled with worldliness. In fact, what we'll see in, in these letters is that there's, there's both there's a con- commendation uh, and then there's sometimes correction, and then there's two churches that receive condemnation and no correction. And so we'll see the sort of the, uh, the way that that plays out. Uh, we have the church at Thyatira. This is the church known for excelling still more and to a greater, to gr- and to a greater degree, uh, obeyed even more in their persevering faith and love, but did not always deal with corrupting influences in, in the church. We have the church at Sardis, the church with the, you might say, with the artificial pulse, right? I mean, you, ha- you have a name that you are alive, but it says that you are dead. And so they had, you might say, a reputation, but no reality. We have the church at Philadelphia, the unassuming church, a faithful church, where God's enemies were forced to bow, a, a church where the enemies of God were forced to acknowledge God's special love and care for His people and then uh, lastly, this, the church at Laodicea, this is the lukewarm church, the church that was full of arrogant and self-sufficient uh, materialists, uh, but perhaps a small remnant of hopefuls um, that remained and that God calls to repentance uh, in that particular uh, letter. Now, notice verse uh, 12 of chapter 1. It says, then I turned to see the voice that was speaking with me, and having turned, I saw seven golden lampstands. Uh, drop down to verse 16. Uh, In his right hand, he held seven stars, and out of his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun shining in its strength. Verse 20. As for the mystery of the seven stars, which you saw in my right hand, and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. So John begins his correspondence in in the normal way, writing a message for seven particular churches, and and he is to write down all that God reveals to him. Uh, The completed written revelation is then to be given to 
angels or messengers who will each then deliver the revelation to their particular local church to which it has been appointed. And John tells us where these local fellowships are are located. They are in Asia, that is to say Asia Minor or on that western end of what what is now modern-day Turkey. But why these particular churches? Uh, There were, of course, other churches in and around this area, but why them and why send this correspondence to these particular churches and why only seven of them? Well, we know that the number seven indicates here, as it normally does, a, you, you might say a, a totality. So we know that, and we'll, we'll talk about this number seven in just a moment, but we know that at this point it represents sort of a, a, the idea of completeness or totality. We also know that these seven ministries were located along what was known as the great sort of circular road that bound the most populous and the most influential part of this province together. So, so there was this road in Asia Minor that bound these cities together. And not only that, we also know that John knew his audience because here in verse 4, he simply uses his first name. So we assume that because he only uses his first name and doesn't use some of the other designations and titles, we assume that John knew them very well. And not only that, but that they also knew him well. According to verse 9, each Fellowship was aware that he was imprisoned on the island of Patmos. Patmos, we mentioned last week, was a small island off the coast of Turkey on the southern end of the Aegean Sea. Uh, The the Apostle John was likely sent there the year prior to pinning this this revelation by the Emperor Domitian. We, we, We mentioned Domitian last week. Uh, This was a man who essentially what they would normally do is when one of these emperors would pass away, they would deify these emperors. But Domitian was impatient, so he he wanted to be alive and be deified. And so he sort of wanted wanted to expedite that process. He was an immoral man. He was a, a persecutor of Jews, a persecutor of Christians. He was an adulterer. He was involved in incest. Uh, He was responsible for the murder of his niece, Julia, who died from basically a botched abortion after he impregnated her. And Domitian wanted John out of Ephesus, where John had ministered for some 30 years. So Domitian wanted him out. He wanted him silenced. And and since the island of Patmos was within the proconsul's jurisdiction... It was a convenient place for a religious or a, a political prisoner where, where they could exile them or silence them. And so there John was, exiled on this strategic uh, island with, with some freedoms, but, but, but not many. So he, he writes to these seven specific churches who knew him well, in fact, he likely became to these churches uh, like a spiritual father because he probably served in some way in the later years of his ministry as sort of an overseeing shepherd to each of these churches' respective teams of pastors or teams of elders. So John had this very intimate knowledge of these ministries. 
which meant that he had no need to ease into what he would say to them, whether it was a word of commendation or a word of severe correction. So these, these letters were written and this apocalypse was written to these seven local fellowships. But notice in this greeting who it is from. Verse 4, grace to you and peace from him who is, who was, and who is to come, and from the seven spirits, and verse 5, and from Jesus Christ. So you have greetings from God himself directly in this letter. And you have titles that indicate a, a separating out of of each member of the Trinity in a very unique way. So, so what you see here are greetings from God, greetings of grace and peace directly from the Godhead. And we'll see the significance of that in a moment. So first we have this from God the Father. Uh, the Father who is presented in verse 4 as both transcendent and imminent. He is transcendent. That is to say that he is outside and over all of his creation in the sense that he is bigger than and larger than his creation. He is outside of its time-space continuum. He is not bound by it. He is immense. He is above it and outside of it. But when we speak of him being imminent, what we mean is that he is near and intimately involved. That though God the Father is transcendent, He also chooses to be intimately involved in His creation. So He, he involves Himself. It's his, his choice. It's His prerogative. He involves Himself not just in creation, which is true. I mean, on, a, on, a, on a sort of a macro scale, but He chooses to involve Himself, folks, in your life. He chooses to involve Himself in my life on a daily basis. That is, that is what we mean by... God's eminence. And that is what you see here in this title. Grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come. And when you hear that last phrase, you may think that he's referring to Christ, especially since in verse 7, you'll, you'll note there that that verse 7 explicitly says that Jesus Christ is coming. But it can't be in this first title, a reference to Jesus Christ, because verses 5 and 6 sort of separate Jesus out in, in this greeting. And it also can't be a reference to the Holy Spirit, because He is also separated out in verse 4. Therefore, this must be a title for God the Father. But it's a fascinating way of, of describing the Father, who is, who was, who is to come, and it's used again there, you'll notice in verse 8, the end of that verse, I'm the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. Now, look for a moment at chapter 4, to turn in your Bibles over, just over, flip over to chapter 4, verse 8. Again, we'll see this throughout the book of Revelation. Verse 8, And the four living creatures, each one of them, having six wings, are full of eyes around and within. And day and night they do not cease to say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God, the Almighty, who was and who is and who is to come. In chapter 11, verse 17, 
Beginning there in verse 16, And the twenty-four elders who sit on their thrones before God fell on their faces and worshipped God, saying, We give you thanks, O Lord God the Almighty, who are and who were, because you have taken your great power and have begun to reign. Chapter 16, verse 5, And I heard the angel of the waters saying, Righteous are you who are and who were, O Holy One, Because you judged these things. So what does the title mean? What what does it intend? Well, there are several elements to it that, that masterfully sort of blend or weave together God's transcendence and His eminence. This is a letter from God the Father who is. That is to say, He exists. You remember when God called Moses... To lead the people out of Egypt, back in Exodus chapter 3, Moses says to God, he says, I'm going to the sons of Israel and I'm going to say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you. And then he says this, now they may say to me, what is his name? What shall I say to them? And God said to Moses in verse 14 of Exodus 3, I am who I am. And he said... Thus you shall say to the sons of Israel, I am has sent me to you. This is God's memorial name. I am. In other words, I exist. I am self-existent. This is the great perfection of God that we refer to in theology as God's aseity. Literally, from self. God exists in and of himself. Now, secondly, this is from God the Father who was, which is an interesting verb. It's in a form that indicates that He has always existed in eternity and that in the past there never was a time that He did not exist. That is to say, not only does He exist, but every moment in the past He has always existed. That is a part of His title. He is the God who was. And these two verbs work together to describe the Father's transcendence. He transcends our finite existence as created beings. He is outside of time and space. Uh, Time and space were created by Him. He is over all of His creation. He ordains it. He rules it. He sets its boundaries. He decrees its lifespan. As I was studying this this week, it reminded me of our verse, inscribed verses from last week, Psalm 102, verse 25. Of old you laid the foundation of the earth, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you will remain. They will all wear out like a garment. You will change them like a robe, and they will pass away. But you are the same, and your years have no end. So what you have here is the fact that God exists... And respect to all past history and time, he has always existed. In other words, he has no beginning. He is the one who is and who was, who always was. But what about this third description? That he is the one who is to come. Well, this is about God's eminence, his nearness, his intimate involvement in his creation. He is the one who is to come, or literally, the one who is coming. Again, this isn't describing Jesus. This is describing the Father. 
So how is that title sort of, how does that work out? How is that applied to the Father? Well, it's applied to the Father in the sense that it is the Father's mercy toward His creatures, His fallen creatures, that is revealed in the person and the return and the reign of Christ. That is to say, Christ comes sent by the Father. And the Father intimately reveals Himself to us in the sending of His Son who reveals Him to us. In in the sending of the Son who is our involved and intimate Savior, in the sending of the Son who will be our King, in the sending of the Son who reveals to us what the Father chooses to reveal to us about His own heart. In that way, God comes, and He is to come. He is to come in Christ, in the Son. John 1.18, no one has seen God at any time. The only begotten God who is in the bosom of the Father, He has explained Him. John 10, verse 30, I and the Father are one. John 14, verse 8, Philip said to, to Christ, Lord, show us the Father And it is enough for us. And Jesus said to him, Have I been so long with you, and yet you have not come to know me, Philip? He who has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, Show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am the Father, and the Father is in me? Or I am in the Father, and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own initiative, but the Father abiding in me does His works." So if the Father is the one who sent Jesus to save us, and if the Father is the one who sent Jesus to reign over us and with us, then the Father is rightly called Him who is to come. So what you have here is a greeting from the Father in all His transcendence, in all of His eminence. Grace and peace to you from the Father who is and who was and who is to come in the revelation of His Son. Now, the next thing you see here is a greeting from the Spirit. The Spirit who is powerful, all-powerful, and perfect, says grace and peace from the seven spirits who are before His throne. From the Spirit who is comprehensive in His influence and utterly effective in His influence. That is to say... He is powerful in His influence and cannot be assailed. Now we know that within the Godhead there are three distinct persons. The Father, the Son, or or the, the Logos, the Word that became flesh, and the Spirit who according to John's Gospel in chapter 15 verse 26 proceeds from the Father. But here it mentions the seven spirits who are before God's throne. So what does that mean? Well, we have some help. Revelation chapter 3, verse 1. To the angel of the church in Sardis write, He who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars says this. So, Jesus is the one who has the seven spirits of God and holds them and sends them out. They proceed from the ministry of Jesus. They work on behalf of Jesus. Or in this case, they minister on behalf of Christ. 
Then we have Revelation chapter 4, verse 5. This is the scene in heaven, uh, the throne, and God is being worshipped. Revelation 4, verse 5, "...out from the throne come flashes of lightning and sounds and peals of thunder, and there were seven lamps of fire burning before the throne, which are the seven spirits of God." So here you have the seven spirits of God as lamps burning. Revelation chapter 5, verse 6, "...and I saw between the throne with the four living creatures and the elders a lamb standing as if slain." having seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. So Jesus Christ holds the seven spirits of God, and Christ has seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into the earth. So what we're we're piecing together at this point is the fact that the the seven spirits of God are really... The Spirit of Christ. And the Spirit of Christ is held by Christ and sent out by Christ throughout the globe on a redemptive mission to penetrate the world with the power of Christ and the perfect wisdom of God. How do we know that? Turn over to Zechariah chapter 4. Zechariah chapter 4. There are a couple of places in the book of Revelation where this, uh, where the sort of the, the vividness of Zechariah's prophecy are, are are pulled in to this final revelation by the apostle John. Zechariah four verse one. Then the angel who was speaking with me returned and roused me as a man who is awakened from his sleep. He said to me, "What do you see?" And I said, "I see and behold a lampstand of." A lampstand all of gold with its bowl on the top of it and its seven lamps on it with seven spouts belonging to each of the lamps which are on the top of it. Also two olive trees by it, one on the right side of the bowl and one on or the other on its left side. Then I said to the angel who was speaking with me saying, what are these my Lord? So the angel who was speaking with me answered and said to me, do do you not know what these are? And I said, No, my Lord. And then he said to me, This is the word of the Lord to Zerubbabel, saying, Not by might nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. What are you, O great mountain? Before Zerubbabel you will become a plain, and he will bring forth the top stone with shouts of grace, grace to it. Also, the word of the Lord came to me, saying, The hands of Zerubbabel have laid the foundation of this house, and his hands will finish it. Then you will know that the Lord of hosts has sent me to you, for who has despised the day of small things? But these seven will be glad when they see the plumb line in the hand of Zerubbabel. These are the eyes of the Lord, which range to and fro throughout the earth. So what you see in Zechariah is a, is a reference to the potency and the penetrating wisdom and the power of the Spirit of Almighty God to, to, to tear down one kingdom and to rebuild the foundation of another and to finish it so that the Lord of hosts is known to be the one who sent the rulers to do His bidding. And the seven lamps and the seven spouts will be glad when they see the plumb line in the hand of Zerubbabel. They will be glad when they see God completing the task. 
And these are the eyes of the Lord which range to and fro throughout the earth. In other words, the Spirit of God is the one that makes it happen. The Spirit is the one who penetrates and does these things. And the Apostle John pulls this into the Revelation and talks about this penetrating work, this complete wisdom work, this this finished work. What you see about the Spirit is that He is omnipotent and powerful, that His work is perfect and complete. And when the Lord who holds the seven spirits, which are the Spirit Himself, when He sends the spirits out across the globe, they accomplish the work He wants to accomplish. So why does He refer to the Holy Spirit as seven spirits rather than just one? Again, you, you, can't, you can't really ignore the way the number seven is used throughout the book of Revelation. I'll just give you a, just a sampling of this. Of course, we have the seven gold, golden lampstands there in chapter 1, verse 12. We already saw in Revelation 1, 16, the seven stars. In Revelation chapter 5, 1, it says, I saw in the right hand of him who sat on the throne a book written inside and on the back sealed up with seven seals. This is uh, the, uh, the title deed to the earth. Verse 6 of chapter 5, and I saw between the throne... Again, the the elders, a lamb standing as if slain, having seven horns, seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. Revelation 8, 2, in these judgments that are coming upon the earth, the lamb brings the seventh seal, and John sees there in verse 2, the seven angels who stand before God and seven trumpets were given to them. Revelation 10, 3, there are seven peals of thunder. Revelation 10, 7 says, But in the days of the voice of the seventh angel, when he is about to sound, then, and then notice this, then the mystery of God is finished as he preached to his servants, the prophets. In other words, the revelation is finished. The judgments are coming. It is a complete revelation. Everybody is warned. It's a complete process. Revelation 12.3, Then another sign appeared in heaven, and behold, a great red dragon having seven heads and ten horns, and on his heads were seven diadems. There's this, this sense in which there is a, a fullness of evil. Revelation 15.1, Then I saw another sign in heaven, great and marvelous, seven angels who had seven plagues, which are the last, because in them the wrath of God is finished. Revelation 15, 7, Then one of the four living creatures gave to the seven angels seven golden bowls full of the wrath of God who lives forever and ever. And again, there's, there's a sense in which there is a, a, a fullness of the evil that begins to be expressed under the Antichrist's reign. So that by the time you get to, to chapter 17 verse 9, you have these seven blasphemous heads on this beast. They are seven mountains on which the woman, the great harlot, sits. So so you have this seven and seven and seven time and time again in Revelation. And of course, there are other numbers repeated in the book. Twelve thrones, ten kings, a thousand years, twenty-four elders. But the number seven in the places that it is repeated, seems to be most often referring to the fullness of something or the completeness of something. And that is what I think is meant by the seven spirits who are before God's throne. The Holy Spirit 
is penetrating. He is comprehensive in his wisdom. He is, he is full in his, in his power, in his efficacy. He is omnipotent. And if God says the Spirit of God is going to go to and fro throughout the earth and accomplish these things, then that is the guarantee to God's people of your grace and peace. So this greeting, right, because he's saying grace and peace to you. I'm saying because of what he says here about the Spirit of God, this is an absolute certainty. You will receive grace. You will receive peace. Why? Because of the comprehensive work and ministry of the Spirit. And because the Spirit of God is all-powerful, whatever God intends, He will accomplish. By the way, it may be very well that uh, it, it may very well be that the reference to the seven churches is a way of connecting the same idea of fullness to these churches. Uh, they may have been in Asia Minor and may have been actual churches, but ultimately the implications of what is written to these churches becomes important really for all churches in this age. Perhaps that is why John writes to seven churches because they represent the fullness of God's people assembled and they, they need the penetrating power and influence of the Spirit. So they need the transcendence of God to minister grace and peace. They need the eminence and nearness of God to minister grace and peace. And the people of God need the Spirit of God's perfect and penetrating wisdom that is comprehensive and effective and complete and so powerful that it cannot be overcome. And that's not all. We're just kidding to the sun, right? We have the Son. We have a greeting from Jesus Christ who is likely mentioned because we usually have we usually first, second, third person of the Trinity, Father, Son, Spirit. But in this case, we have a greeting from Jesus who is likely mentioned last because John is going to say some things about Christ that are important just in preparation for verse 7, which starts out with, Behold, He is coming, speaking of Christ. So he says in verse 5, Grace and peace to you from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and the ruler of the kings of the earth. A greeting from the Son of God who is faithful and majestic. And we have these three designations for Christ. He is the faithful witness. He is God's faithful witness. He is the one who is faithful to do what God has promised. In fact, this title is used to describe Him later in chapter 3, verse 14. And then in chapter 19, verse 11, it says, I saw heaven open, and behold, a white horse, and he who sat on it called Faithful and true. And in righteousness he judges and wages war. And interestingly, this is terminology that is likely pulled from Psalm 89, which is a psalm about the Davidic covenant and God's faithfulness to bring a king on the throne of David who would be a forever ruler. The whole psalm, that whole psalm, Psalm 89, is about God's faithfulness. So Jesus Christ is God's faithful witness, keeping covenant love and exercising fidelity. He's also the firstborn, the text says, of the dead. He is literally the firstborn from among those who have died. He is the one who came in human flesh and bore our sins in His body, and He died not bearing His own guilt, 
and sin, but on our behalf by being our substitute. But he was then the firstborn, the prototokos. He is the firstborn in the sense of being the one who was the pioneer of resurrection life. He is the one who conquered death. He is the one who has preeminence. This word is used over in Colossians chapter 1, verse 18, that says, Christ is head. He is also head of the body, the church, and he is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that he himself will come to have first place in everything. He is the firstborn of the dead. That is to say, others will be raised from the dead, but he is the first fruits, as Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15 23. And then thirdly, he is the ruler of the kings of the earth. He is the, the term is archon, the ruler. He is the ruler of the kings. In Revelation chapter 17, verse 18, you have the woman, the harlot, Babylon the great, the great city that leads the culture into wickedness sort of on a global scale. And it says there in verse 18, the woman whom you saw is the great city which reigns over the kings of the earth. Or, or literally, which has a kingdom over the kings of the earth. So she holds this, uh, she holds a kingdom over the kings of the earth. She has some influence and sway, but she is not the archon. She is not the ruler of these individuals. Christ is the, is God's forever ruler. Revelation 17, 14, these will wage war against the Lamb, and the Lamb will overcome them because He is Lord of lords and King of kings, and those who are with Him are the called and chosen and faithful. Again, in that victory chapter, chapter 19, verse 16, and on His robe and on His thigh He has a name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. He is the high king, which is exactly what Psalm 89 says. Psalm 89 verse 27 says, I also shall make him my firstborn, the highest of the kings of the earth. So here's the beginning of this prophecy about the indescribable judgments of God to come, the the incomprehensible miseries to come, the warnings of God about this judgment and even God's grace that goes out during these times. But here at the very beginning... You have God in all of His fullness, God the Father who is transcendent. He is the transcendent one, the eminent one. You have the Spirit who is the perfect and all-powerful one who cannot be stopped. You have the Son of God who is the faithful and majestic one. And they all say, I want you to have strength and hope that comes from my grace and my peace. God says that to His people. I mean, folks, the, the thing that, that, that really stood out to me this week is that when people think about the book of Revelation, they, they're, they're so eager to get to the part about fi- solving the puzzle, right? They want to get on into the later chapters and put the puzzle together. And I, and I told this, I was meeting with a small group this week of, of, of some men, and I just said, in light of studying this, I said, it's like, it would be like me and another, uh, another guy that I, I barely know and, 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 and that he doesn't know me that well, I don't know him that well, but, but for some reason I'm totally intrigued with what he's going to do this afternoon at 3 o'clock, and then what he's going to do this afternoon at 4 o'clock, and then what he's going to do tonight at 9 o'clock, when I don't have a relationship much with him, Right? And I'm saying what stood out to me is that we're not even, we're not even to that point in the book 
But this is a very unique greeting. I mean, we have other greetings in other epistles where it's, you know, from God the Father or a mention of Jesus Christ. But for not anything like this, greetings from God the Father, greetings from God the Spirit, greetings from, from, from Jesus Christ, the Son of God, the coming King, grace and peace. And then all of these attributes of God, is, is, is if, it's as if to say, who cares about what's going to happen at 3 o'clock if you don't know him? They all say, I want you to have hope for my grace and my peace. That is what God says to his people. And it's no wonder that that then leads to praise. Verse 5, the second part of verse 5, inspired praise to Christ. And from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and the ruler of the kings of the earth, to him who loves us and released us from our sins by his blood. Who is that a reference to? That's a reference to Jesus Christ. And this is praise for the love that he has for his own, which is pictured as a continuing into the present. In other words, he loves us and he keeps on loving us. And what are the evidences of his ongoing love for us? Three things, pardon, place, and privilege. First, our pardon. Uh, the, The one who loves us has loosed us. He has released us which is in this aorist tense, which means that he paid for our sins once and for all. So he loves us, which is this ongoing thing, and then he released us from our sins. That's past tense. That's a done deal. And then notice our place and privilege. Verse 6, he's made us to be a kingdom, priest to his God and Father. So by releasing us from our sins... Because of the love which He loved us, we now have this great place. He has made us to be a kingdom. We have a king. The kingdom is coming on earth, and He will reign in righteousness, and we are in that place with Him. And what about our privilege? We are priests to the Father who sent the Son. A priest is one who mediates truth to lost souls. A priest is is, is a person who mediates the character of God to other people. We, folks, serve the living God. We serve the living God. We serve His purposes. We are His hands and feet, His instruments of grace and peace to others. We are set apart for Him in a royal priesthood that the Apostle Peter said that that we would offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God. We are called to do that. We are empowered to do that. Think about what should take place in your life today and should continue on into this week. You are called to praise. I am called to to praise. You are called to give thanks. You are called to do good and to share. You are anointed for that service. It It is powerful and effective. Words of counsel that you share with others. Moments of prayer, lifting up another person in our church who is suffering with pain or sin. Showing hospitality, even here today in this service. Musicians playing for His glory. Laying down a sacrifice of resources and time. That's what this is all about. We are a kingdom of priests to Christ, God, and Father. No wonder John breaks forth with this. To Him be the glory and the dominion forever and ever. Amen. And then lastly, note the preview of Christ's second coming. In verses 7 and 8, John provides his readers with a preview of what will come later in the book. Verse 7, Behold, 
Uh, In other words, listen up, look, pay attention. He is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him, and all the tribes of the earth will mourn over him. So it is to be. Amen. Behold, he is coming. And he is coming soon. And notice the details. He's coming with the clouds, a reference to Daniel chapter 7, verse 13. And every eye will see him. Now, we don't, we don't need a human explanation for it. Just mark it down, right? All the globe will see. And, and they will know him for who he is in all of his power and glory because the seven spirits have gone out to convict the hearts of men. Even those who pierced him, this I think is a reference to the Jewish people, the Jews, his own. Right? The Jews will be astonished. And when Christ returns, the Jews will be amazed because He was their Messiah, the one through whom salvation came, as Paul says in Romans, to the Jew first. This is Israel. And Israel will be shocked. And all of the tribes of the earth will mourn over Him. Again, this I think refers to the words of Zechariah's prophecy in Zechariah chapter 12. Verse 10, I will pour out on the house of David and on the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and of supplication so that they will look on me whom they have pierced and they will mourn for him as one mourns for an only son and they will weep bitterly over him like the bitter weeping over a firstborn. In that day there will be a great mourning in Jerusalem like the mourning of Hedadramon in the plain of Megiddo, the land will mourn every family by itself. And that day, simply saying, in that day, every family in Israel of every tribe will be secluded in mourning and weeping over the one whom they have pierced. And God will be pleased with that. And He will love that and He will put... Uh, Jeremiah says, He will put the fear of Himself in their hearts and rejoice over them to do good. And they will be His people and He will be their God. But unlike the Jewish nation, the Gentiles' mourning will not generally result from genuine repentance. Their mourning will mostly be prompted by terror and despair. Mourning not over Christ, but over their doom. So it is to be. Amen, John writes. It is decreed. And then notice the power of the Godhead, verse 8. I am the Alpha and Omega, says the Lord, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. All of this, folks, all of this before the seven, the letters to the seven churches, before the scenes of worship in heaven, before the, the, the war machine gets cranked up and the judgments begin to unfold. And before the second advent of Christ, what you have here in this greeting is a demonstration of the kindness of God to send a message of grace and peace to His people from the entire Godhead who is to be praised. And out of that, you have this preview of and promise that He is coming and the world will be shocked. His glory will finally be on display and they will all finally know it was Him all along. Are you ready? Are you ready? In J.C. Ryle's book titled, Are You Ready for the End of Time? He writes, It will come on men suddenly... 
It will break on the world all at once. It will not have been talked over, prepared for, and looked forward to by everybody. It will awaken men's minds like the cry of fire at midnight. It will startle men's hearts like a trumpet blown at their bedside in their first sleep. Like Pharaoh and his host in the Red Sea, they will know nothing till the very waters are upon them. Before they can recover their breath and know where they are, they shall find that the Lord is come. I suspect there is a vague notion floating in men's minds that the present order of things will not end quite so suddenly. I suspect men cling to the idea that there will be a kind of Saturday night in the world. A time when all will know the day of the Lord is near. A time when all will be able to cleanse their consciences, look out their, uh, look out their wedding garments, shake off their earthly business, and prepare to meet their God. If any reader of this address has got such a notion into his head, I charge him to give it up forever. If anything is clear in unfulfilled prophecy, this one fact seems clear, that the Lord's coming will be sudden and take men by surprise. He goes on, Reader, the suddenness of the Lord's second advent is a truth that should lead every professing Christian to great searchings of heart. It should lead him to serious thought, both about himself and about the world. Think for a moment how little the world is prepared for such an event. Look at the towns and cities of the earth and think of them. Mark how most men are entirely absorbed in the things of time and utterly engrossed with the business of their callings. Banks, counting houses, shops, uh, politics, law, medicine, commerce, railways, banquets, balls, theaters, each and all are drinking up the hearts and souls of thousands and and thrusting out the things of God. Think what a fearful shock the sudden stoppage of all these things would be. The sudden stoppage which will be in the day of Christ's appearing. If only one great house of business stops payment, stops payment now, it makes a great sensation. What then shall be the crash when the whole machine of worldly affairs shall stand still at once? From money counting and earthly scheming, from racing after riches and wrangling about trifles, to be hurried away to meet the King of Kings. How tremendous the change. The challenge of the book of Revelation makes to every person is to be ready for Christ's return. Only those who have loved His appearing who love Him and acknowledge Him as their rightful King, will inherit eternal life and enjoy the blessings of His kingdom. So if you're here this morning, folks, if you're here this morning and you have never repented of your sins, you have never trusted in Christ, you are bound in your sins. You're bound in them. You are under God's righteous wrath and you need release. And the only way to have that is through the blood and the sacrificial death of Christ. Our prayer for you today is that you would believe on Him for salvation. That you would not be caught off guard. You would not be caught off guard when He comes again. Let's stand for prayer. Our Father, we thank You for this this hurried and yet thrilling glimpse of the coming of Christ. And we say with the Apostle John, 
Even so, amen. Let it happen. At the same time, Father, we pray that every person here would be ready, that they would be ready because they have, they have submitted their lives to Jesus Christ. So, Lord, we simply ask that you would speak to hearts this morning. Uh, may no one be unprepared for the inevitable moment and, and all of those tragic events that precede the coming of Christ in judgment. Strengthen your church, Lord, today through your word. Strengthen your people and be gracious to many, Lord, that those who are here with us today that may not know you, that they would be saved. In Christ's name, amen.